Let us begin in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts again this morning as we begin in earnest the study of the book of Revelation. Help us to try to open our minds and our hearts to what you are trying to tell us. Give us the strength and the grace to open ourselves to you so that you can speak to us through Holy Scripture. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things, in Jesus' name. So you can see that when we read this book, don't just take it as some fantastic writings of uh, 2,000 years ago, because these things happen over and over and over throughout history. You had the Crusades, you had the Spanish Inquisition, and the, of course the Reformation here, and several other things in between that affected the church in general. And we are the church. Okay, so you've got to be extremely careful. Okay. Any great questions on last week's uh, lecture that is still kind of uh, stewing in your minds or hearts okay. that we can kind of clear up. All right. Now, since you don't have this little book, and I, as I said last week, I deliberately omitted leaving this book or giving this book out to you. Some of you still have it from the last time around, which was you know, seven, eight years ago. Uh, but I want to go through it and give you a more simplified idea of what it is saying and explain some of these things so that they don't fester in your mind as they do. I've noticed that when people read the book of Revelation, they're so taken by the grotesque pictures and the unusual wording and the uh, myths and uh, metaphors and the symbols that are being used that they get confused and actually forget or never see what the message is. And so what I'm trying to do here is get you to understand what the message is and uh, kind of sidestep a lot of the unusual stuff. All right. So I hope you don't mind, but I'm going to reread something that you've probably already read more than once. <clears throat> The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, Jesus, to show his servants, us, what must happen soon. Now, this book is written in the first century. We're not exactly sure what date. You know, they never was, that was not important in those days. Uh, but it was written to the people of the first century both those who accepted Christ, that is, the Jewish converts, and those who rejected Christ. You have two sides, the good and the not so good. All right. So, what is the word revelation really saying? The synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are written in sort of a biographical order. 
they take Jesus, actually uh, Matthew and Luke, take Jesus right from uh, his birth and extend it all the way through his public ministry to his death and resurrection. It shows this man who is God. And that's fine. That's the way it should be. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke do a great job of that. John works it from another way around. He takes God, who came to earth as man for our salvation. So John's gospel is an entirely different viewpoint, but the ending, of course, and the objection is the same thing. The book of Revelation is asking us to look at God coming from heaven, speaking to mankind through his servant, John, uh, in a little different way. And I'll get into that as we go along. All right. Now, who is John? Well, there's many different viewpoints and understanding. This book here says John is John the Baptist. I think he forgot that John the Baptist died before Jesus Christ did. Um, and I don't think that that is, uh, that is right at all. I mean, I just dismiss that because I don't. Many other people on good grounds think that John of Revelation is the same John of the, of the Gospel. Uh, and several books afterwards. And we're not sure of that. There are good reasons to think so, and there are reasons to say, no, that's not correct. So we're not quite sure. All right. Uh, the other op option is that John might be an entirely different person who uses the name John in order to uh, acquire some uh, degree of acceptability right, or credibility. Many uh, of the, excuse me, there's uh, a couple seats up here that you may uh, use. In the first century, writers who were not known or writers who were not uh, disciples of some well-known person could not get their work published. Remember, they did not write for money. That was not known in those days. People didn't have the money. A lot of people couldn't read anyways. So writing was an art. <clears throat> and in order to get your art expressed, Sometimes you would have to attach the name of somebody who was recognized. So this could be an entirely different person. And that's kind of where I am at my belief here. This is a very inspired person uh, who wrote this book and attached the name John, which was a common name in Jewish culture at the time. It wasn't pronounced John, of course. It was mostly... Joshua or Yeshua, Jesus' name was similar to that, Yeshua, um, but I don't think that that's really important when you come down to it as to who this person was. 
obviously he was very much inspired and he used this name John. Whether it was John the Evangelist or not, uh, we don't know. And that really doesn't make a great deal of difference. Except that it does not contradict anything that the evangelist, John, actually wrote. They seem to coordinate and be very much in line. All right, <clears throat> let's go on. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. Now, this is sort of an introduction, what we call a prologue here in writing. And it sort of introduces what we're going to be talking about, what we're going to be saying. <laughs> Who gives witness, and that's where this writer here has picked the idea of it being the Baptist, because John the Baptist was a witness at Jesus' baptism. He was the great witness. He fulfilled the prophecy that Elijah would have to return and announce the coming of the Messiah. And that's what John the Baptist really did. Who gives witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ by reporting what he saw. Because, <coughs> pardon me, blessed is the one who reads aloud and blessed are those who listen to the prophetic message and heed what is written in it for the appointed time is near. Right. Now, of course, what he's talking about here is in writing in the Jewish culture of the first century, everything was of urgency. The other thing is that in many cases, the people of the first century, after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, assumed, erroneously, because there was no... Uh, reason for it, but assume that Jesus' second coming, remember it was prophesied by the angel at the morning of the resurrection when the apostles went to the tomb, they found a couple angels there, and the angel said, uh, who are you looking for? And they said, well, of course, we're looking for the body of Jesus. And the angel said, he is not here, he has risen, but he will return on the clouds and you will see him. All right, so from that point on, the culture of the time expected that Jesus was going to return very shortly and many of those people thought that <coughs> in the process, <coughs> excuse me, in the process of his returning that he was going to rout the Romans and restore Israel to a sovereign nation as it was 500 years before the Babylonian uh, exile. That was not Jesus' intention. That was not God's intention of his plan of salvation. Uh, but that was the prevailing thought. And you'll see that that sort of follows through uh, on the first part of this book of Revelation. Okay. So that is kind of the prologue just sort of introducing who this person is and what he is proposing to do. He is proposing to write about his vision and the instructions that he has given in this vision, which we will get into now. Okay. 
it is like Jesus now saying to this person, John, right, to the seven churches in Asia, write to you, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come. That is a famous phrase that is used over and over and over to record uh, the identity of Jesus, the one who is, who was, and who is to come. In other words, it identifies somebody who is infinite and always has been, as God always has been. All right. And from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, again, Jesus Christ, who has made us into a kingdom and priests for his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. This whole idea of being made into a kingdom of priests. We are all, to some degree, priests because we are followers of Jesus Christ and our mission is a little bit of what the mission of Jesus Christ was, to proclaim light to the other nations or light to your neighbors. That will come up over and over and over in this book. Any of you recall the main theme of last Sunday's liturgy, the readings in last Sunday's liturgy? Light, yes. That's included slightly, but it's more the whole idea of light. All right? We are the light. In other words, Christ says in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, part of the um, Sermon on the Mount, right after the Beatitudes. Hmm? We are the salt of the earth, yes. And we are light to the nations. We are light, all right? And we should be standing out and allowing people to see us. See us in our professing of our faith. Doesn't have to be that you have to beat people over the head with it. Uh, you know, you, several years ago we had this, uh, born again movement, uh, by one Christian group. And, you know, they practically grabbed you by the throat here and, and beat you over the head until you understood that they were born again. And you should too. Well, no. When you are expressing your faith, it should be love. Not, this is my example, and boy, you better get it to, you know, to, no, no, no. The whole idea is God wants us to express his message that he is the Lord and Savior of all mankind but he wants you to do it in a loving way don't hold back though so many people say well my faith is my business and no one else's well unfortunately you got it backwards alright because faith is to be shared with everyone 
All right. It says, Behold, he is coming amid the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. All the peoples of the earth will lament him. Yes, amen. Well, that is a reference to the second coming of Christ, which, as I said earlier, uh, the people of this time period expected that to be soon. And again, you will see that the urgency expressed in many ways throughout this book. It says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. These are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. And it's referring to the beginning and the last, the all. In other words, God, the meaning of the word Yahweh is I am all that is. And this is in reference to that. Remember, Jesus and the Father are equal. Says, I am the Alpha and the the Omega, says the Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty, repeating what we just read. Okay. I, John, your brother, who share with you the distress, the kingdom, and the endurance we have in Jesus, found myself on the island called Patmos. Now, if you look at the little map I gave you last week in the first handout, you'll see Patmos on the Left side, no, about halfway up. (coughs) In other words, he was banished to the island of Patmos because he proclaimed God's word and gave testimony to Jesus. All right? Even in those days, he was caught up in the persecution and the... uh, Banishment. It doesn't say how or why or under conditions or who did it. It says, I was caught up in the spirit of the Lord's day. The Lord's day being Sunday. This is the beginning of the separation of the Jewish observance of the Sabbath. Remember, the Jewish observance of the Saturday was from Friday night to Saturday night. Now, the people of the first century began to withdraw from that as they began to transition from the Jewish liturgies to Christian liturgies. They began to uh, observe Sunday because of Christ's resurrection on Sunday and Pentecost being on Sunday. It wasn't until the 4th century when this was made official by the Emperor Constantine after he was converted. But the Jewish observance is now in sort of a transition. The separation has not been completed officially yet. But the Lord's Day, and of course that is a reference to Sunday, and heard behind me a voice as loud as a trumpet. A trumpet, in this case, always represents the presence of God or the coming of God in some way, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, 
Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Then I turned to see whose voice it was that I that spoke to me. And when I turned, I saw seven gold lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, wearing an ankle-length robe with a gold sash around his chest. The hair on his head was as white as wool or as snow, and his eyes were like a fiery flame. For those of you who read chapter 7 of the book of Daniel, you'll see almost the same identical description of God there. His feet were like polished brass refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing water. In his right hand he held seven stars. A sharp two-edged sword came out of his mouth, and his face shone like the sun of its brightness. Well, we better stop there because there's a lot of stuff to explain, right? Okay. I think the description of God uh, or Jesus as God here is self-evident, all right? We don't know what Jesus is going to look like in heaven, uh, but this description here certainly fits a, a very nice way. But let's go on to something else here. I want to explain to you the importance of the of the number seven. I don't know if you can see all of this. Unfortunately, uh, the board is in such a position that it's pretty difficult for everybody to see. But the number seven is one of the three most important numbers in Jewish culture. Three, seven, and twelve. Now let's get forty out of the way. All right. Forty was not an important uh, cultural thing. It was a literary device. When people wanted to refer to a number of years, but because of a mixture of calendars or a lack of calendars, they had no way to determine exactly how many years or how many months or how many days a certain event took. So they would use the form of <coughs> of the number 40 to indicate a long but imprecise period of time. That was not necessarily a cultural thing. It was a literary device. Is that clear? Okay. Now, because we have the number 40 used in many parts of the Bible, beginning uh, with Noah and the ark where it rained for 40 days and 40 nights, almost like it's doing right now out there. All right, uh, we had the Israelites wandering in the desert for 40 years. All right, uh, there were a number of 40s throughout the Old Testament. And that is simply because there was no calendars or way to record exactly how many years or months or days uh, there really were. And so the word or the term 40 was used. So let's set that aside. Number three, seven, and 10. I want to use, take seven first because that's the one that is most used. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Three, seven, and 12, yes. 
Thank you. Don't be afraid to correct me if you think I made a, a boo-boo. Of course, I don't make many of them. <laughs> All right. Um, let's take the number seven first, because that is probably the most important, and certainly the one that is most used in this uh, book here. Uh, just as it said, right? <coughs> here. I saw seven gold lampstands, uh, seven stars, etc., etc. Okay. The number seven. Remember, these people, the majority of these people could not read or write. But they knew numbers, obviously, from their own hands. So, yeah, one, two, three, etc. But over a period of time, seven became a very important number and a sacred number. Three also and twelve also, but I'll get to those uh, soon. Seven should be looked upon not necessarily as something having seven parts, uh, but rather as a takeoff on seven days of the week. Seven days of the week make a complete week. Right? All right. And that is the way you should look at the word seven in this book. It is to indicate completeness. If we go, that's the, in there, it says here, uh, in this fellow here that wrote this book says, the number seven is the most important number in the Jewish writings. It always carries a meaning of completeness. The modern tendency would be an attempt to define the meaning of each of a list of seven, and that is seven parts, uh, rather than to recognize that seven is often, uh, recognize that seven uh, should just be replaced by the word complete. Will that help you or will that cause you more confusion? Uh, let's look at it this way. The seven lampstands. The seven lampstands in this particular case represent all of light or wisdom, infinite wisdom. And because Christ is standing in the midst of those lampstands, it means that wisdom has come from God. All right. That's what the seven means here. So I saw seven lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. All right? That term comes again from both the prophet Ezekiel and uh, from the book of Daniel, who used that term to mean somebody who is greater than the angels and certainly not man, a human being. All right? And that it can only be applied to Jesus Christ himself. <laughs> now, we'll get into the lampstands again in a little while. The hair on his head and so forth, we're going through that again. When I caught sight of him, I fell down at his feet as though dead. And he touched me with his right hand. Now, why would this writer emphasize right hand? Hmm? 
How do you know that? Yeah, Joe said because Jesus sits on the right hand of the Father. That's what we've been taught for over years. All right, but you know, heaven is not a physical place, so we have no way of knowing. But in expressing power, the right hand is in reference to power. The right arm is in reference to strength. You have, in Jewish culture, you had a symbolism transition between numbers and words, and a lot of metaphors, and a lot of myths. Uh, so we'll, we'll go through that a little at a time. I don't want to overwhelm you here, uh, but these are things that you have to understand in order to get down to the basis and the truth of what this book is telling us. All right. Today we're going to spend only on two main subjects of the book, and that is the visions uh, and the letters. Right. But you have to understand a lot of these little uh, quirky symbolisms in between. Right. <laughs> now, <coughs> I hope many of you or all of you brought your handout from last week, and I do encourage you to bring it every week, um, all of the handouts, because you just never know when you're going to uh, need to Ephesus, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Write this. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Again, the seven stars represent total power. Complete power. And walks in the midst of the seven gold lampstands. The seven lampstands represent complete light or wisdom which come from God. I know of your works, your labor, your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate the wicked. You have... <clears throat> You have tested those who call themselves apostles but are not and discovered that they are imposters. Moreover, you have endurance and have suffered for my name and have not grown weary. You see, the whole idea of these churches, which are all within the small radius uh, of what is now the country of Turkey, it is because the Jewish converts of Israel moved out because of the persecutions and they settled in these states uh, or these little villages uh, in Turkey and also in Syria. Even though they were still part of the Roman Empire, they were allowed by the Romans to uh, follow their faith as they chose, as long as they did not uh, interrupt or uh, dis disparage uh, Roman rule. But as in Israel, they were ostracized because they were Jewish converts, and they were not allowed in the temple. They were actually persecuted by their own people. All right? So this is why they moved out to this area. Now, if you'll 
look at this, but well, I'll get to that item later. All right. So the letter is saying that there was a lot of good and there were some things that needed improvement, okay? Yet I hold this against you. You have lost the love you had at first. In other words, like many people, like it is human, after a while your enthusiasm for your faith sort of uh, diminishes a little bit, becomes a little routine, and that's true with all of us. We can be on fire when we first come into the faith, but after a while, things become sort of routine, and that faith sort of mellows down and cools off, okay? Realize how far you have fallen. Repent. Now, the word repent will be in all seven of these letters. And do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstands from its place. Unless you repent, but you have this in your favor. You hate the words of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Who, and I'll come back to that in a minute. Whoever has ears ought to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The victor I will give, to the victor I will give the right to eat from the tree of life that is in the garden of God. That's in a reference to back to the Garden of Eden, which of course was representative of heaven. Alright. Now, the Nicolaitans. I've tried to do a lot of research to get something a little more specific, but I cannot. If you go to the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 15, there is a rather lengthy description of the problems that uh, developed between the non-Jewish converts and the Jewish converts. Some converted Jews came from Jerusalem to these various towns, Ephesus in this case, and a few of the others, and said that the converts had to uh, go through the Jewish ritual of circumcision before they could be true Christians. And that created a lot of problem, as you can see. Uh, now, of course, circumcision was only for the men, but unfortunately that was the culture, and that's the way things were written. We are not sure for uh, certain whether these Nicolaitans were the, of those people or not, but there is some reason to believe that they were. Um, there is no other relationship uh, this, and yet over in Pergamum you have the same statement. Now, the only other relation that I can make is that in the Acts of the Apostles, uh, chapter, I forgot all that. Anyways, it talks about the seven deacons that were ordained to help out the apostles <clears throat> in order to do some serving. 
And one of those seven deacons' name was Nicholas, Nicholas of Antioch, who was not Jewish. Uh, he was a convert. Uh, but we are not sure whether these people uh, were followers of that particular deacon or not. And it really doesn't make a lot of difference. Okay? It really is not an important thing as to who these people were. But obviously, because it's written in here a couple times, uh, people want to know. And so, uh, like I said, I've done as much uh, research as I can, and I cannot find anything more than what I've already told you. Okay. So let's move on. <clears throat> the wording, uh, whoever has ears ought to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, etc., etc., uh, is in almost all four, seven of these letters. All right. Now, what did this really tell us? Not a great deal. All right. It talks about the people of Ephesus had a very strong conversion experience and they wanted to express it and show it as should be. Now we're talking about Jewish converts. This whole book is not written to non-Jewish people. They would not understand most of the symbolisms that are used here. But the people that... Uh, we're talking to, and these letters are addressed to Jewish converts. Okay. They had a lot of enthusiasm in the beginning, but gradually uh, began to grow cold. Okay. What does Jesus do? He tells them to repent and return and do the good works that they did at first. And then he promises... One thing, if they don't, he's going to remove their lampstand. What he's going to do is remove the light that they have already been given and the privileges that they have already been given, that is the Eucharist and so forth. That is what the reference here is to the lampstand. Remember, the lampstand represents wisdom, the light of wisdom. Light in this particular time period, as well as all the way up through the 17th century in America, was extremely valuable and important because without electricity, they had to use some physical means, such as candles or oil uh, or fire, uh, to obtain light when it was night outside. Otherwise, there was nothing to see, no way to see. So light was extremely important, and that is why it is used so often to represent wisdom, knowledge, uh, and, and a number of other attributes. Okay. Let's move on to Smyrna. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write this. The first and the last, again, the English version of the Alpha and the Omega, who once died but came to life, says this. I know your tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. I know the slander of those who claim to be Jews, but are not, 
but rather are members of the assembly of Satan. Now, what he's talking about here is that there was a temple in Smyrna dedicated to the emperor. Remember, emperor worship was very common. And in fact, it became almost um, a destructive belief. And I'll get into that a little <coughs> later. But that is what, what is talking about here as the assembly of Satan. A lot of the Jews, <coughs> because they saw the advantage of going over to the other side, uh, such as tax collectors, went to the other side, that is, to the Roman side, and, and worked for the Romans, and actually became, in their minds and hearts, uh, a Roman in themselves. Uh, they were what is called here Jews, but who are not really Jews. All right. Do not be afraid of anything that you are going to suffer. Indeed, the devil will throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will face an ordeal for ten days. Remain faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. And here is the first expression of suffering on earth, but the reward for that suffering in uh, allegiance to to Christ or God in general will be rewarded in heaven. And some people would say, well, that's easy for you to say, you know. Uh, but that's the way we should really look at it. We are all, just because we are all dedicated Christians, that doesn't mean that we're not going to have hardship in our life. But with Christ being with us, and relying on him, we will get through that suffering, whatever it might be. And it's different for each and all of us. And I'm going to come back uh, and summarize some of this in that way as we get through all of this. <clears throat> Again, whoever has ears ought to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is a common way of ending a letter at that particular time. To Pergamum, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write this, the one with the sharp two-edged sword. Now, there was reference to this two-edged sword coming out of uh, Jesus' mouth. That kind of is of a grotesque image, isn't it? What it is saying here is the two-edged sword is really the gospel, the teachings of Jesus Christ in the form of the Gospels. These were begin, begin, begun, whatever, uh, to spread throughout the Mideast. From the beginning of Paul's letters uh, in the early 50s and the first Gospel, which was Mark's, uh, later in the 50s and early 60s, then, then Luke and John, after that, or Matthew and, and John after that. Uh, <laughs> excuse me. Um, John being the last one. Uh, 
says, I know you live where Satan's throne is. And that's another simple idea because there was a, um, there was a temple to Augustus Caesar. It says here, the city of Pergamum was known for its devotion to the cult of Augustus Caesar, has earned the city the epitaph of the throne of Satan in the eyes of the prophet. Perhaps refusal to participate in some of the form of that civic cult led to the death of the famous martyr, martyr Antipas. I don't know who Antipas is. I tried to find out, but I could not find. <clears throat> hmm? oh, well, that, his name was Antipas too, but that was not the same person. Yeah. Um, there's also an interesting point here made. Yet I have a few things against you, even though he's upholding Pergamum as almost a model village or city, uh, he has some things against you. You have some people there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who instructed Balak to put a stumbling block before the Israelites, to eat food sacrificed to idols, and to play the harlot. Likewise, you have some people who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans, the same group again. Okay. All right. Now, I want to stop here for a minute. In the second century BC, when the book of Daniel was written, it was written in a way uh, to give people some hope in the midst of severe persecutions uh, by the Greek king Antiochus IV, who over, well, over a period of time uh, was the conqueror of uh, Israel, by the rest of the Greeks. Remember, the Greek Empire covered most of what was eventually the Roman Empire, and then some. Uh, but the Greeks and the Hellenists, which was the Greek culture of that time, was imposed upon uh, all peoples uh, in the conquering area. And some of this had filtered down into the Jewish traditions and cultures and became a real problem. And that is what is, uh, they're talking about here. Balaam and Balak, all right, two separate people, all right. <laughs> but it's not important that we get into that right now. Okay. Therefore, again, repent. Otherwise, I will come to you quickly and wage war against them with the sword of my mouth. Not a physical sword, but his teachings. Whoever has ears, ears ought to hear what the Spirit has to the churches. To the victor, I shall give some of the hidden manna. I shall also give a white amulet upon which is inscribed a new name. 
which no one knows except the one who receives it. Remember, when we were baptized, we took upon ourselves a new name. I don't know if they do that in baptism anymore, but they did years ago. That was a very important part of baptism, and we were always proud of our baptismal name. And that indicated a new person, a whole new concept, because we were no longer, uh, I don't know how you would say it, because if we were baptized as infants, when we became confirmed, that's when we took on a new name, and uh, we became a new person in Christ okay, through the Holy Spirit. Some of these traditions have kind of uh, disappeared, unfortunately. <clears throat> I'm trying to get through all of this so I can at least explain a little bit of the details, and then I hope to come back and summarize uh, the seven churches here. To the angel of the church of Thyatira. Tyra. Okay. Now, when they say the angel, that doesn't mean there's an angel fluttering over the church. No. It generally refers to the head person, the bishop or whoever is the leader, because that person was presumably chosen by God in one form or another. So as the Son of God, whose eyes are like a fiery flame and whose feet are like polished brass, says this, I know your works, your love, faith, service, and endurance, and that your last works are greater than the first. In other words, their faith is growing. Yet I hold this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, who teaches and misleads my servants to play the harlot and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her harlotry. And so I will cast her on a sickbed and plunge those who commit adultery with her into intense suffering, unless, underline that word, well, you don't have the book in front of you, but anyways, the whole idea of unless. Remember, God does not condemn anyone. He might might warn us, he will warn us, has warned us, and will continue to warn us, but he doesn't condemn anyone. Those who do not heed his warnings condemn themselves. And that's the whole message of this book. Unless they repent of her works, I will also put her children to death. And thus shall all the churches come to know that I am the searcher of hearts and minds and that I will give each of you what your works deserve. All right. That's when I copied this article last night out of the paper because in that first column it gives almost the same words referring to people of more modern times. Now, Jezebel in this case is not the same Jezebel as you will find in 1 Kings chapter 15, uh, the wife of Ahab, 
the wife of Ahab, who was the king of Israel back some earlier time, was not a Jew. She was from another nation, a very a forceful woman, very um, conniving. And she didn't like what the prophet Amos and a few others had to say, so she started her own school of prophets. And that's why if you read about the guild prophets, they are not the prophets of God. So you've got to be careful when you're reading uh, some Old Testament history. The guild prophets were not the prophets of God. They were people who were went to a particular school that Jezebel started uh, to try to educate the people in things that she wanted them to know. And most of it was uh, worship of of the Caesars, worship of pagan gods in many ways. Okay, so apparently now there's another woman that is taking, sort of being coming uh, an imitation of the original Jezebel. And that is what is being referred to here. So the thing is, even in those days, you had a lot of rather interesting and conniving people who tried to get ahead one way or the other. <clears throat> but I say to you, the rest of you in Thyatira, uh, who do not uphold this teaching and know nothing of the so-called deep secrets of Satan, because uh, this Jezebel and her school tried to say that they knew uh, the secrets of Satan and the end of the world. <clears throat> I will place no further burden except that you must hold fast to what you have until I come. To the victor who keeps my ways until the end, I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with an iron rod like clay vessels they will be smashed. Just as I received authority from my father, and to him I will give the morning star. Whoever has ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, these people were very enthusiastic converts. They were doing good, but they were being bothered by people from the outside. Okay. To Sardis. To the angel of the church in Sardis, write this. The one who has the seven spirits of God, that is, the Holy Spirit, and the seven stars, that is, complete power, says this. I know your works, that you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen what is left, which is going to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then how you accepted and heard, kept it and repent. If you are not watchful, I will come like a thief, and you will never know at what hour I will come upon you. However, you have a few people in Sardis 
who have not soiled their garments. They will walk with me dressed in white because they are worthy. The victor will thus be dressed in white and I will never erase his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name in the presence of my father and of the of his angels. Again, whoever has ears ought to hear. <coughs> we have the same warning after each of these letters. <coughs> to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, not Pennsylvania. Okay. Again, the sender, the holy one, the true, who holds the key of David, who opens and no one shall close, who closes and no one shall open. These are just flowery words in order to identify Jesus as somebody above all others. He is no longer the human Jesus that was on earth, but now the divine Jesus telling this or speaking to us from heaven. I know your words. Behold, I have left an open door before you, which no one can close. You have limited strength, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I make those of the assembly of Satan, again, worshipers of the emperor cult, who claim to be Jews and are not. These are pe Jewish people who are now in collaboration or accepted the Roman way of living and are no longer of the Jewish faith, one way or the other. <coughs> who, are, uh, who claim to be Jews but are not and are lying. Behold, I will make them come and fall prostrate at your feet. And they will realize that I love you because you have kept my message of endurance. I will keep you safe in the time of trial that is going to come to the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may, may take your crown. To the victor I will make into a pillar of the temple of my God and he will never leave it again. On him I will inscribe the name of my God and the name of the city of my God and the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, as well as my new name. All right. New name. In this case, when it represents Jesus talking about new name, what is that name? Lord. If you go to uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 2, verses 16 to 11, it talks about all of the struggles that Jesus went through and God then honored that and proclaimed his name, which was greater than all other names. And we must recognize that his name is Lord. Remember, Name is one of those words like arm and hand. I said earlier, hand represents power. 
Arm represents strength. Face represents presence. Name represents the whole being of a person. People in this time period did not run up and say, oh, hello, my name is Joe or Peter, Bill or Mary or whatever. They did not wear little badges on or little stickers on their chest uh, saying, hello, my name is so-and-so. Uh-uh. They protected their name because name was like giving somebody part of themselves. But name represents the entire person. And that is why when it says here, I will give him a new name, that means I will make him a whole new person. Whoever has ears to hear, the same thing. Okay. To Laodicea, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write this. The Amen, the first and the true witness, the source of God's creation, says this. The entry of all letters has some identification, some flowery language identifying the sender, as you have already seen, and as it has in this little handout here. Okay. <coughs> the faithful and true witness, the source of God's creation, says this, I know your works. I know that you are neither hot nor cold. Now listen to this carefully. I know that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you either to be either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich and affluent and have no need for anything. Sounds like people today. And yet, do not realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and with white garments to put on so that your shameful nakedness may not be exposed and by ointment to smear on your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and chastise. Be earnest, therefore, and repent. This idea of being hot and cold, it is because the waters from this water to serve this particular town uh, came from hot springs. And it had to come quite a distance by outdoor aqueducts, which was very common in those days. And by the time it got down into the town, it was lukewarm. And people either had to somehow chill it to make it drinkable, or to heat it to make it used for cooking. But as it was, it wasn't really much good of any for any major purpose. Yeah, washing their hands or whatever, perhaps, but not for any important purpose. And that's why Jesus uses that phrase here, you are neither hot nor cold. In other words, these are people who have been converted, but they're sort of eh, wishy-washy, lukewarm. What, what's easy they'll do, what is hard, eh, forget it. 
Now, this is the important part of this particular <coughs> letter. This again is to Laodicea. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, then I will enter his house and dine with him and he with me. And I will give the victor the right to sit with me at my throne, as I myself first won the victory and sit with my father on his throne. There is a famous painting of Christ standing in front of a door, you know, with his hands sort of like this ready to knock. And if you notice the door, it has no knobs or handles on the outside. The indication is that that is the door to our heart, and it has to be opened from the inside. Now, that is a famous painting. I was trying to get some copies of it. I couldn't find any uh, quickly. Uh, but if you ever come across it, look at it carefully because there are no handles or knobs of any kind on the outside. It has to be opened from the inside, indicating that Christ is not going to barge into us unless we open the door and permit that. Really important point, Madge. Do I feel, or there's other people, that we're really being uh, persecuted right now as yeah. Christians? In many ways, yes. Particularly those Christians in the Mideast. Uh, you know, they've had their houses burned and a number of other tragic things happened to them. Uh, but all of us, are being persecuted in, in many ways. Yes. Again, it closes with whoever has ears ought to hear what the Spirit has to say. Now, did you notice when you read this or when you listen to this poor guy up here to read some of this did you notice anything in particular? Did you notice that there was no action? There was a lot of threats, but there was no action. And that is important to remember that God will threaten, but he does not actually cause any serious uh retribution of any kind. He will use it if it's there. He will permit it, but he does not cause it. In fact, I think that's mentioned right here somewhere. Well, anyways, I, I don't see it offhand. <coughs> verse 19. Verse 19? Well, that's, that's in the book here, right? Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> 
Yeah, all right. Jesus does not deliberately cause pain and suffering, although it may seem like that at times. But he will use natural or normal phenomena. Uh, some of the tragic things that have happened this winter right in the United States with tornadoes just yesterday and the day before down in Louisiana and throughout the Midwest. Uh, the torrential rains that we have had. You know, people for the last five or six years have been praying for rain and, you know, Lord, send us rain. How many of them, how many of the same people have thanked the Lord for the abundance of rain that he is now sending us? Yes, it's causing problems, but that has another uh, another well, consequence too. I'm trying to think of some polite words. I could think of some others. You know. But uh, anyways, the thing that you should get from this is that there's a lot of warning, there's a lot of praise, but there is no action directly taken from here. It is because God constantly, in his infinite love, cannot deliberately harm people, cannot deliberately do anything serious. He will use it if that is uh, possible. But the other thing is, he constantly holds out the idea of rewards, even if they may not be in this life. And I think there's a uh, there's a, something important here that I wanted to. Uh. Oh, here it is here. <laughs> this is in the commentary section here. If Christians can remain convinced that Jesus' death and resurrection has reversed the poles of life and death. That is, there is life far more important than anxious concern for our mortal bodies. Then you will not be subjected to fear and intimidation by the wordings in the book of Revelation. In other words, Statisticians tell us that there are billions and billions of dollars spent every year to try to keep us young and energetic and live forever and, you know, make us all look like Marilyn Monroe or, or uh, you know, Clark Gable. I know I'm dating myself when I use those. <clears throat> but how much time and energy is spent on preparing and increasing the soul and faith. 
very little, very little. And yet, the whole idea of life is, as one wise person said many years ago, from the moment we were born, we're heading towards death. And we should look at it not in a morbid way, but as something that is greater than this life on earth. Now, God wants us to enjoy life on earth, but we cannot make that more important than our ultimate goal of life with him in heaven. And that's what it, life, that is what this book is all about. It is warning us, just as this letter is saying that, you know, Our Lady of Fatima and her warning that the world would suffer if we did not try to convert Russia. Well, we did sort of a halfway job on that. And at least there is churches open in Russia. But even now, they still have to be very careful. Uh, it is warning us that if we do not repent, that something greater is going to happen. And of course, not only the First World War, but the Second World War. Look at how many people lost their lives simply because of greed uh, on the part of certain countries uh, wanting to control power, all the power of Earth. And what good is that if you're going to suffer in heaven, or in hell forever? Okay. Uh, so the idea is here. <coughs> Try to understand what your role is in God's plan of salvation. We have talked about that over and over and over, but that's what it is all about. God's plan of salvation is going to be successful, is going to get done, and if you're not part of it, you're going to suffer. It is simple as that. Now, how do you know what your role in God's plan of salvation is? That begins with prayer, because for each one of you, it's going to be different. And that is one of the objections of objectives of this letter, uh, the schedule here, is to show that these are all different kinds of people. Even though they are within the same area, they are different kinds of people because we are all different. We've all been given different qualities and attributes and so forth and so on. But collectively, we are to come together and be a light to the nations. Now, we're not going to go <coughs> out of our local sphere or society or whatever and try to convert somebody up in Canada or Mexico or, or Russia or any place else. But within our own community, God is not expecting us to go anywhere else than within our own community and be a light. But don't hide your faith. Make it visible so that other people can see it. I recently moved to Misty Wood an independent community 
a residential community here with well, a little over 100 people living there. And it's interesting because you have, within 100 or so people, you have the gamut of all kinds. And it's a nice little community. I really enjoy the people there. But they are of all different kinds of faiths and beliefs. And most of them will not talk about it, you know. That's private. And so I, along with Alice and uh, one or two others, when we say, when, when we attend uh, the meals, which are all community meals in a common dining room, we both bless ourselves and say the prayers before meals. Alice even goes further and says the prayer after meal. Well, I've sort of gotten away from that. But nevertheless, the thing is, I have never heard a single person complain that I was violating their territory or whatever. They respect what I do. They don't follow, but they respect it. And that is just a minor little thing. I do it not to show off, but I do it because that's part of me. Right? That's who I am. And I want them to know that because I am a Christian, I am a Catholic, and I am proud of that. Right? And that is what we have to do, is to share our faith because we are proud of it. And because we know that by being faithful Christians, God is going to bless us with eternal salvation. And that's what it's all Yes. Yeah. Things to come. Yeah. Good things to come. Yeah. All right. Let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for this time together. We thank you and we ask your blessing on us to open our minds and our hearts to better understand your role and your plan. Help us then to find our part in your plan so that we might fulfill it in accordance with your most holy will. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.